Hello, thanks for listening to this latest University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman, and our guest this week is Jackie Lelks, Senior Lecturer in the School of Applied Social Science. Jackie is interested in how we think about and work with older people, particularly in relation to the application of adult law to practice. She's also involved in the Hearing Aid podcast, a resource for health and social care professionals working with older people. We talked about the care system and, of course, her work here at the university. I work with the social work students, so we run a number of programmes. So we have an undergrad uh, social work course and a postgrad as well social work course. But we also do quite a lot of continual professional development courses as well. For example, for, uh, once you've got your social work qualification, there are certain roles where you then have to carry on training. So if you want to be an approved mental health practitioner, for example, you need to then come and do training for a year to do that. Um, I'm involved in what's called the Deprivation of Liberties Training, for example, which is where, under the Mental Capacity Act, if somebody lacks the ability to make a decision themselves and they're in residential care and they're not allowed to leave, there's a legal process uh, called Deprivation of Liberties. So we do that uh, continuing professional training as well. Um, and so I'm involved in a range of courses across the university. And we'll go into detail about some of the focuses that you look at a little bit later on. Quite a lot to get stuck into. Can you tell us about your background then before you got to the university? Take us on a sort of whistle-stop tour whistle of your stop career. tour of my career, OK. So uh, went and did my A-levels, went to university and did a degree in uh, sociology. I then was a care assistant for um, just over a year, working with people who were tetraplegic, so uh, no ability to move from below the neck. Uh, And then I decided to train to be a social worker. So I went to the University of Liverpool where I did my social work qualification. It was a little different then, because you had to have a degree and experience and then you could do it in a year. Now it's three years. Um, And after that, I then worked as a social worker for um, a very long time. In practice, so working... um, When I first qualified, social work was generic and I worked in a hospital, so we worked with adults and children, so uh, from pre-birth right through to end of life. That remains the same, it's just now you have to specialise. And then I was involved in setting up intermediate care teams, which are um, specialist rehabilitation teams working with people who have been in hospital who are discharged earlier, the idea being to get people back to independence. At various points, I was team manager of, uh, in local authorities as well. And then I decided that I wanted to get into education. So I was a practice educator where you support students doing their placements. We still have that system now. And then I worked for the Open University while still working in social work practice. And then I got a position here and so then went from part-time to full-time. I've been here, I think, for about nine years full-time now. So no longer in practice, but up until that, so over 25 years as a social work practitioner. Your focus on how we think about and work with older people it's a very sensitive area as most social work areas are and it would take a takes a very particular type of person to have that kind of job I guess how do you prepare your students to be prepared for what they're going to experience in the workplace clearly placements are a fantastic opportunity Mm. but just in sort of I guess or mentally getting your head around what you're going to have to encounter I think well obviously placement's hugely important because social work students do 
two very long placements. They do a 70-day placement in their second year and a 100-day placement in their final year or first year of your MSc and final year. And that's really where a lot of the preparation comes because they have to actually do the job so it's not an observation placement. They're actually have, they'll have their own cases to work with. Um, and so actually the time that you spent with service users obviously helps to prepare. We um, also, I think one of the nice things about uh, Brighton is all of the lecturers here, we come from practice. So we've all uh, first-hand experience of working with people. So we're able to use, I suppose, that lived experience as well to help them to understand uh, what it means to work with service users. Um, and also, it's not... Social workers, you're privileged, aren't you, I think, when you're working with service users because by default you work with somebody because they're in a difficult place at that moment in their lives and if you can help them to turn that around there's a privilege in being able to do that um, but also it's not all sad and you can hear some wonderful stories and people have such exciting lives and if you listen to them and you hear those stories then obviously there's a lot of joy as well as sadness but I think like lots of things it um, sometimes you just have to build that emotional resilience through doing the job really and then thinking about your own emotional health and well-being and we talk to students quite a lot about well what do you do outside how do you relax um, also techniques about how can you sort of park your work until the next day when you have to, when you sort of pick it up again so we talk about those things and uh, hopefully that way and through experience you learn to become um, slightly more emotionally able to deal with the challenges of working with people who Obviously, you can see some difficult things uh, in practice. What's behind your decision to go into this field in the first place? Uh, good one. It's, I think that's quite hard because I'm, I'm very conscious that, you know, students are just um, getting exam or just had their exam results, aren't they? And I basically messed up my A-levels completely. And so I took, um, I took sociology as an additional A-level and really enjoyed it and that led me to do sociology as my degree and that then led me to becoming a carer and I really loved that role and then it was so what where, where's the natural progression from there and I'm very nosy and social workers I think have to be quite nosy um, and so I was just really interested in what could I do, what job could I do working with people so and I think that just sometimes I think you fall into a job that turns out to be the right job did you naturally fall into focusing more on older, older people? people? Yeah. Was that just that was, was that a decision that happened during practice or when you came yeah, into education? No, I, no, it happened during practice. So, as I said, when I went into practice, I, I started in hospitals. Mm. Um, so, as you imagine, general big general hospitals cover from uh, birth to end of life. Mm. Um, and so, I I was involved in working with children, and I realised that that wasn't what interested me in a sense um, also because I think I was uh, for social work at that time I was very young you had to be um, 24 and I, before you could start the job and that was it I was the youngest you could possibly be that's, that's the only thing I sort of focused on doing um, and I found that quite difficult as quite young without children of my own 
to them. So I, I naturally, and also I'd naturally gravitated towards my grandparents and their stories and things like that. So I think I naturally gravitated towards uh, uh, wards that were for older people um, and having the time to, to work with them. So yeah, and that, it just, it was very clear to me that it was not that way. And some people are just, you know, you've got to go, haven't you, where you feel you work best. And children was not where I felt I worked best. Yeah, and I think everyone can pretty much relate to a lot of your focus on adult social care. Most people will know a family member who's had or has um, dementia, has had a stroke, is frail. The emotional and financial side of being able to deal with care. Mm. It's extremely hard, isn't it? Absolutely. I think, you know, I, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, worked, I've worked with adults for a long time. Um, and particularly if you're going to work with older people, you're quite right. There's a high percentage of older people that have dementia. Um, and actually, um, my mother then got dementia and I, and I, and I realised it really made me think about my work that I had done with people with dementia when I actually had that lived experience of working. And I have a real interest in the Mental Capacity Act. That's what the subject of my PhD. And uh, it suddenly dawned on me that I'd done a lot of assessments of people under the Mental Capacity Act. And actually then I was on the other side of the fence as people were doing these assessments with my mother. And it really made me start to think about, you know, what, how would I reach some of those decisions and what was impacting that on me, which actually looks very different if you're the relative of somebody as to the professional of somebody. It's really made me rethink a lot of, of uh, around things like that, around mental capacity and how we do those assessments. So what are some of those key findings then? Well, I'm still working on it at the moment. It's quite, I'm only in the first year of my PhD, so um, age is no barrier to uh, carrying on with your education, uh, which I think is a really important message, actually, around, you know, we can study at any time, can't we, as long as we find something that really interests us. Actually, one of the things that interests uh, one of the things that I've sort of been thinking about is things like emotions and actually how do um, you ask about how you detach yourself from those emotions and actually whilst you can do it to an extent, you can never completely detach from your emotional side, even as any professional it doesn't matter what your profession is um, and actually I, one of the things I'm interested in looking at is is uh, what do things like our own emotions, how do they impact on how we make decisions Um, and also you know our social work the mental capacity act isn't just about social workers it can be doctors nurses uh, ot's everybody but obviously i'm concentrating on social workers but you know how do we do we actually truly detach all of that our own lived experiences when we're doing these assessments Mm. i mean a lot of people are having to make decisions on behalf of their family member at the moment but i guess there must be that is one of the toughest areas when the line is kind of blurry, when it's not really particularly obvious whether that individual can make their own decisions or whether family has to. Is that when it gets really tricky? Yeah, that tipping point. And where does that tipping point exist from um, being able to say that somebody can make this decision and somebody can't make the decision? Um, and obviously the point of the Mental Capacity Act is, is to allow people to make as many decisions as they can make. It's not a blanket, you can't make any decision. But it's really difficult, isn't it? Where does, it, where does that tip over? And so what I'm interested in trying to find out is what's influencing practitioners when they, they make that, that decision and they tip from saying, yes, you can make this decision to know you can't because there are huge consequences aren't there then of deciding that somebody can't make a decision if you think about your own lives and suddenly you get told you can't make a decision 
uh, and somebody is going to make it for you, there's huge impact there. And because mental capacity is from, you know, it's from 18 up, so any of us can fall into that at some point where we may not be able to make those decisions. Yeah, I mean, just, um, I mean, talking from own experiences of families, members that have dementia, where that becomes tricky, I, I imagine, is when your family member may be in a little bit of denial about the situation that they're in so then it gets obviously that person will get frustrated and maybe that sometimes makes you make a decision for that individual and actually they probably could have still made it themselves they're just coming finding it hard to come to terms with what they're going through it's not uncommon is it if you love somebody to want to try and keep them safe and sometimes uh, families want to make decisions because actually they're concerned about the safety of that person Um, Or actually their life is just very difficult. If somebody is ringing you up uh, five or six or seven times a night or through the night and you're getting no sleep, it's quite difficult because obviously one of the things that somebody with dementia may not have is a time frame, so they may not realise that it's two o'clock in the morning. Um, And so, you know, all of these things can impact on uh, anybody saying, I think the best thing would be, for example, for somebody to go into residential care. Um, whereas actually the person may not want to do that and they might still be able to not have to go into residential care if the right support is provided around them and, and what's that right support. But then that's quite that's not going to mean 24-hour support is it, in your own home um, and that can be quite difficult, can't it, for family when actually what they, they do, they're making things with the best intentions but if, then if you think about your own life and suddenly you're being told that you can't do something and you've got to move into residential care, that's, that's emotionally and psychologically quite difficult, I think. Um, and we had that with my mother, you know, that got to the point where she had to go into residential care. But then you've got to deal, as a family member, you've got to deal with the anger that comes, haven't you, at you because you've had to make a decision, which is the right decision, but actually you've still got somebody then who's very angry at, at this decision because... I don't think it's uncommon for family members to try to ask people to promise never to send them into residential care. I still hear that from practitioners. Promise you'll never do that. And that's a really difficult promise to make, isn't it? In fact, personally, I don't think you can make that promise because none of us know what's going to happen to us as we age. And 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 any of us could get either a dementia or have an accident or, or whatever that might mean that we can't make those decisions. But yeah, anger, the anger that comes back, obviously is uh, you've got to then think well how do I deal with this anger yeah and then another thing you have to deal with is the financial side of, of this um, let's talk very briefly about the current state of play <laughs> with adult social care in England the fact that we don't really know where that is right now there's the, there's a paper that's been promised for a while yeah. hasn't materialized yeah. uh, Prime Minister, as we're speaking, our Prime Minister Boris Johnson stood on the steps of Downing Street when he first became Prime Minister and said he was going to fix the social care crisis once and for all. What do you think? I mean, what what needs to be done? Do you have much faith in in, in some sort of development? I think it's a difficult one because I think adult social care has always had less money. So if you took the social care budget, which I was just looking it up, it's something like 21 billion or something. That was a few years ago now, I think. Couldn't find the latest figures. But I think even... But then you take the budget, the social care budget, and you break that down. The amount of that money that then goes to adults is is quite small. Um, And you're right. uh, And that's a big difference, isn't it, between uh, NHS and social care, which is quite a stumbling block is NHS uh, care is free social care 
uh, is potentially not free. And for most people, uh, there'll be a, some element of a cost for that, whether it's the full cost or whether it's part cost. We've been promised all sorts of things. I mean, we've been promised like a cap on how much of your funding that you would need to spend. They came out when the Care Act was introduced in, uh, in the, and they said, oh, we're going to set this limit and you'll only spend X amount, no fix. And we're still waiting. We're still waiting. And it's, you know, 2014 when the Care Act came out. So we're still waiting for that. This is the most that you will spend. So if you have to sell your property, this is the maximum that you will spend. It seems that there are always lots of promises that never then materialise in terms of we'll give you extra funding or... I suppose the thing that I hear all the time at the moment is, well, we've given you extra funding, and then somebody says, yes, but that was the money that was already promised. It's not extra funding. Um, And it's really difficult because I talk to... Whilst I may not be in practice, I obviously spend a lot of time talking to social workers because, as I said, we do continuing professional development courses, and they're really struggling. And we hear it all the time, don't we, about... uh, budgets being cut and and having to find save so much money and when I talk to my friends and colleagues uh, they're really struggling to be able to find the funding and the Care Act introduced this idea of creativity it's actually written in the Care Act to be creative I think social workers have always been creative Um, but if there are less uh, voluntary organisations as well which obviously are struggling it it becomes more difficult doesn't it Um, money I think is always uh, potentially will help but I think we've also cut a lot of the services that would uh, provided the support that's desperately needed quite you know um, I know this isn't um, older people but you look at mental health services for I suppose for all ages and they've really reduced the, the support that's being provided um, and then we have additional difficulties and an increased number of people with mental health difficulties. Not uncommon, and certainly I, you know, we've seen it uh, even in the university in, in terms of increased people with um, increased mental health needs. Mm. And, and really difficult then, well, where do you, where's the support available to those people? Mm. Did you have faith that something will happen? I mean, it's a, it's a devolved issue, isn't it? So in Scotland, they have there's more funding for this than it's um, I think residential care is part funded isn't it do you think much is going to happen here it's an interesting one because um, I was in practice for a long time and there was always lack of there was always lack of funding mm. um, I'm an eternal optimist so I hopefully yes hopefully we'll be able to sort it mm. um, otherwise um, we're all looking at a pretty bleak future aren't we because you know we all uh, we, we all in a sense, that probably at some point are going to need some level of support. Mm. So uh, I would hope that we can. We, it's sortable. Mm. I think we, we, it's how we're going to do it, and, and obviously we need politicians that will support what we require to be able to do that. Yeah. Here we are recording a, a podcast, Jackie. This is something that you're pretty used to. Um, <laughs> can you tell us about the Hearing A podcast? Yeah, so I'm involved with uh, the Hearing A or MDT podcast, Hearing A podcast, so, uh, which was set up by two uh, consultant geriatricians, uh, Ian Wilkinson and, and Joe Preston, and it's funded by Health Education England. Um, the idea is that we're a faculty, um, so that actually there are a few members from the University of Brighton, so there's myself, 
as the social work professional, but we also have occupational therapy, and Tracy and um, SJ physiotherapy, who are based over at Eastbourne, and we also have nurse input as well. Plus, we can that's the sort of main faculty, but we can then pull on a lots of other uh, people from different disciplines. So, what we're interested in is raising the profile of health and social care for um, older people only. So it's designed to help uh, learning for uh, anybody really, so from medical staff through to social care staff, to try and help them just to understand the complexities of working with older people. So I think we're in series seven now, I think, of it. Um, We're also, it's on Twitter and you can get involved in uh, Twitter discussions. Um, last time I asked, I think we had over 5 million hits on Twitter, so it's growing all the time. Um, and uh, so some of the episodes are quite medicalised, um, but I listen to them and and, and I, every time I listen to a new one, I learn something new about older people and the complexities of their how to look after their medical needs. But we're also looking at areas of social care so for example uh, I'm not sure it's out yet but it will be soon we've just re- we've just recorded an episode on homelessness in older people which is growing uh, amongst the older people um, so we thought that was those areas are quite interesting to look at because I think often we may associate for example homelessness with younger people if we're walking uh, around Brighton we, uh, if you walk around Brighton you can see an increased number of uh, people who are having to sleep on the, on the streets um, but actually, interestingly, there are also higher numbers of older people, not necessarily um, on the streets, but obviously sofa surfing and things like that. And also, if you look into it, there's it's the, the, the history behind some of those reasons about why might people become homeless. Um, obviously spans across all uh, age groups, but again, increasingly amongst older people, breakdown of relationships, loss of home those things and leading to it so we're also interested in those uh, things like identity and how that's formed so there's I think hopefully something for everybody in terms of uh, the health and uh, multiple illnesses and, and etc or different or, or one-off illnesses but also the interesting bits about social uh, what's happening in terms of social and, and people to people as well I will put the links to that in the podcast description for this one as well I'm um, I've also seen that you've been involved in a, a well-being research project. I have, yeah. yes. Um, so well-being from concept to practice. What were you working on? What were your, your findings? Okay. No. The University of Brighton with, with uh, Sussex University and East Sussex County Council and Brighton and Hove City Council, we're in a teaching partnership together, which was money that the government had made available to support uh, training uh, and uh, closer collaboration between universities and uh, local authorities because obviously local authorities hugely important in terms of supporting training for social workers Um, and part of one of the things that we wanted to do was to help uh, practitioners to develop their research skills and so I was involved with a project uh, with um, Anna Bush, who's a works for the local authority, one of the local authorities, and um, we did a piece of research looking at well-being. So the Care Act uh, has a underlying principle of well-being. So what we were interested in trying to find out is how do social workers define well-being? Because um, 
I love English law. It's one of my passions about the law, and I do quite a lot of uh, stuff I teach is around law. But the law is great at not really giving you answers. It tells you to do this, but then doesn't define what it is that you're meant to be doing. So uh, well-being is a good example. It gives it says main principle is somebody's well-being, and it gives you some things like, you know, uh, housing, uh, nutrition, etc. But it doesn't actually define well-being. So we were, well, what, what, how do people define? So we basically were interested, we uh, did it with a uh, group of adult uh, social workers, and we were just interested in, we just asked two questions. So we were interested in how do they define well-being for somebody with capacity and for somebody who lacks capacity. So we did individual interviews and then we did a, a group interview uh, with them as well. Because we were also interested to, uh, to see if you put people in a group, do you change how you define your understanding of well-being? So um, it was very, it, yes, it was interesting. So... I think uh, what was striking um, was that for somebody who with capacity then there was obviously lots of discussions around um, well actually you define your own well-being you define I define my own well-being we all have a different definition of what well-being looks like for us but actually when we then asked the same question about for somebody who lacks capacity we lost the person and uh, it became very um, driven by being risk averse and and wanting to protect the person we sort of define them as artists and formulists so the artists were quite open and to the idea of of entertaining um thinking about how the person defined it themselves but the formulists were much more about processes and organizations um, and so that was our main sort of finding um, one of the things that we obviously would need to do is to do in with, with what we thought we would be interesting to do is to do it with social workers maybe working with a different service user group and see if they had different ideas about what well-being looks like so it's a very small scale project Mm -hmm. around introducing sort of helping to think uh, develop how people undertook research I focus on well-being from universities like ourselves to students uh, for employers for individuals it's had a lot more focus on it over the last few years people are thinking a lot more about their well-being is that because what do you think do you, do you think that people are, are finding it quite hard to switch off from their maybe work and personal lives now so people are having to think more about looking after themselves a bit more I, I think that's partly it but I think we've also I think maybe we're much more um, open to talking about how we feel I think if you go back generations people didn't tend to say did they as much about how they're feeling it was all a bit sort of cloak and dagger and closed up I suppose and I think people are hopefully much more able now to say around what works well what doesn't work how they're feeling in themselves hopefully uh, people feeling more able to say that maybe they're under stress uh, because of the nature of the work the caseloads that they're carrying for example Um, and I just think that there's much more online as well isn't there about well-being and trying to think about your own health um and i think also there's i think people are also hopefully more aware of the importance of of looking after yourself really um and that's one of the things i often say to social work social work students is if you want longevity as a social worker because of the um emotional difficulties that you know of working with people and the very difficult lives that some people live you've really got to try and think about your own well-being as well and what works for you whether that's 
going for a 10-mile run or whether it's, uh, you know, going to the centre. What is it? What is it that works for you? Reading a book, whatever it is. You know, what is it that works for you that will make you be able to uh, leave some of that stuff behind and really think about what's good? And I think um, the university has also begun to acknowledge the importance of... You know, coming to university is stressful, isn't it, for... It could be the first time somebody's left home. I mean, I remember going to university and it was like, you know, how do you cook? <laughs> how do I pay bills? It's all of those things. Um, and I think, you know, hopefully we're much more aware now of the need to support young people as they come away, as they move, potentially move away from home um, and learn all of those life skills. Um, but also there's something about... Um, the freedom that that gives as well, isn't there? And, 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 and also realising that actually you've still got to do university assignments and things like that. It's not all about go blow your budget in, yeah. uh, in the first few months and then wonder how I'm going to do this. So it's all of that learning, I think. And I think the university have got much better at thinking about those things and how do we support people. Yeah. And students will be starting, just about to start university now. We've good... Uh, great advice as well online and uh, we have uh, access to uh, wellbeing coordinators as well so they can go into students yeah, to go and chat to them. Student services as well, access to uh, support there and, and, you know, and also all students have tutorial support um, from uh, the lecturers. So again, you know, with us being able to advise them to go and talk to somebody um, in student services as well to get support and to find out what's available out there um, and also I think you know peer support is available and mentoring and support and obviously the students union also provides quite a lot of support to students as well so we end every podcast with um, five questions and talking points away from your work and <laughs> uh, the same on every podcast so the first one would be what advice would you give to your younger self I don't know. That's quite a hard one, isn't it? What would I What would I advise my younger self to do? Maybe not to quite crash my A-levels the way I did. So maybe, you know, I should have spent a little more time studying which, and then maybe I would have got here a bit quicker. I don't know. But then again, I think, um, I think that's quite difficult because I think sometimes we only learn from the mistakes that we make. And actually, it's the mistakes that we make that turn us into the character that we are. Um, and I, I, I had to think about this question a while ago. Not that question, but was there anything about my life that I regretted? Um, and actually, I came to the conclusion, no, I didn't. Because I realised that, I've, like everybody, I'm only human and I've made lots of mistakes. But actually, I've learned from those mistakes and I think it helps us to grow. Can you pick a favourite place in Sussex? Now, I'm not sure that this is in Sussex, so this might be a slight cheat, but it's certainly on the border. So, um, Kingley Vale, I grew up uh, around in Hampshire, and so it was a place that I was taken to as a child, and it's a place that I've taken my kids to, and it's a place that I still go to. And it's a really... uh, Well, it's got everything, really. If you like walking out in the countryside because it's got very ancient uh, yew forests there. Um, but then you can walk up the hill if you're feeling energetic and they've got uh, ancient burial sites. And then you can sit on the top of the hill and you can look down over, the, uh, into, over to the sea and see right out. And it's just beautiful. Um, and it's beautiful in all sorts of weathers. I was last there in the snow uh, in last, at the beginning of the year. Yeah, so, um, but it, I think it might sit on the border. I just looked this up and you're safe. It oh, is in West Sussex. <laughs> I, like, 
I, 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 grew, I grew up in Chichester, so I was there at yeah. Kingley Vale a lot of the time as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Brilliant. And then you can go to the Wildon Downland and get a cup of coffee. There we go. Um, what are you currently reading, watching and or listening to? So, I wrote this down so I didn't get it wrong. So, I'm, I'm reading H is for Hawk by Helen MacDonald, uh, which is a story about uh, a young person um, who's training a goshawk but also um, it's sort of an analogy with dealing with the death of her father and training for that. Um, I have just watched Killing Eve, second series, very good, Um, and and finished watching um, Keeping Faith as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm afraid um, when I watch telly, I tend to like veg out on things, a bit of escapism. Maybe that's one of my ways of dealing with my own well-being. That or or health documentaries. So, yeah, that's what I've been watching and that's what I'm reading. I do have the first Game of Thrones by my side of my bed as well because I've never watched it, so I thought I'd try reading it. Okay, good idea. (laughs) Um, Can you describe your perfect weekend? Uh, It would have to be um, with family and spending time with my family, extended family, um, and spending, yeah, just, you know, come round, have, have a meal, sit in the garden. You know, it's something about being with siblings, isn't there, about uh, you don't have to go back to the beginning and you can just be, and then, and then you start laughing and then your kids never quite understand what you're laughing about because it's some old history that you're, you're just, something's reminded you of. So, yeah, with family. And finally, if you can invite three people to dinner, past or present, who would they be and why? I'm afraid I really am going to cheat on this one. I got away with the last one, but I have to cheat on this one because I've thought about this and thought about this. Um, so um, my father died when I was uh, in my early 20s. Um, and so I would like to invite my father uh, for a number of reasons, which would be A, because I'd love to know who is he now. And, and, and obviously there's always an element, I think, of you know, what do your parents make of you as you've grown up but also I'd, I would want to invite my two kids because they never met him and this is where the cheat comes in I'm afraid because I'd also want to invite my father-in-law um, so if I was to pronounce my name in Hungarian it's Leokes um, and my father-in-law has this very uh, I'm pretty sure very interesting history because um, he was taken from um, by the Germans to dig trenches and then has this history through the war of arriving um, in England. So I would like to invite my husband and my children to that because he never told us the story and, um, and we only have some letters in, in Hungarian that have not been translated for a number of reasons and I would love them to actually know what happened to him. Um, through his very, uh, from the snippets we have, really interesting history, but like lots of people, never really disclosed the full facts, and I think it would be a fascinating story. We went to the um, National Archives and opened a file, and it's intriguing, so I'd really love them to hear his story, but I'm afraid I'd have to invite my dad, because I'd love them to meet him as well. Thanks to Jackie for her time. You can find out more about the courses offered by the School of Applied Social Science by clicking or tapping the links in the podcast description. Remember, if you're not already, you can like and subscribe to our podcast via Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. Just search University of Brighton. Thanks for listening.